Uh, Ian, we're doing a special episode about housing. I just wondered if you'd care to uh, comment on that at all. No, I'm afraid I can't. There just isn't any room. Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Hello and welcome back to page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this week we are going to be talking to the Eyes housing editor, Rachel Clay, all about homelessness and about social housing. Plus, uh, we'll also be talking to the magazine's editor, Ian Hislop, all about anonymity in Private Eye and why so many of the contributors don't even have the guts to put their name to the stories that they write. But first, housing. A large piece of legislation has just gone through the House of Lords. It's called the Homelessness Reduction Bill, and there's a big piece about it in the latest edition of Private Eye. Rachel Clay is the Eye's housing editor, and to start off, I asked her about the first thing that people do once they have actually been made homeless and where they can go from there. At the moment when you're made homeless, you don't get help until you are standing with your bags in the, in the council office. Up until that point, it doesn't matter if you know that you're going to lose your home in a couple of weeks. The help doesn't kick in until you're standing on the doorstep. So it will. they've been given a pot of money, which they say isn't enough, but people always say that, but they've got some money. This is local councils. Local councils. Yeah. To um, intervene earlier in the process, so have, uh, have an officer who offers help earlier. Um, and it also offers help to single people for the first time. Yes, and why is that unusual? Because at the moment it's just for families or for vulnerable people. So if you, for example, Andy, turned up at the housing office at the local council and said you'd be made homeless, they would say, bad luck, off you go. There isn't any help for you. you. You would have to prove that you were vulnerable. And then if you're able to prove that you're vulnerable in some way, you can be accepted as statutorily homeless. And what are the criteria for being vulnerable? Is that people who are at risk of, for example, domestic abuse? Is it people who are extremely financially precarious? What is it? There are lots and lots and lots of categories. Financially precarious pretty much includes everybody who's homeless, so that certainly isn't one. If you've got mental health problems and you can prove it, Mm -hmm. if you've got children, there are lots of, it goes on, there are heaps and heaps. But you have to be in a terrible state and able to prove it. That's basically the thing. Now, you could argue everybody who's just been made homeless is in a terrible state. I would argue that. But that's not what the law says. You have to have a particular category of vulnerability. Yeah. And if you're in a terrible state and you're not able to prove it? Bad luck. I mean, that happens to an awful lot of people. Obviously, it's called gatekeeping. And the problem for councils is they don't have enough places to put people. So when people show up at their office, there is a huge pressure to not accept them as homeless. So if you look at the official statistics on homelessness, they just include people who've been accepted as homeless. So they don't actually include everybody who's been made homeless at all. They just include the people that the council has a duty to house. And and those are the people who we who are called statutorily homeless. In this example where someone's become homeless, maybe they've fallen behind on rent or they've fallen behind on their mortgage or the house has been repossessed uh, or the the landlord has just told them they have to leave. Uh, They arrive at the council. If they're vulnerable and they can prove it, they're made statutorily homeless. Yeah. What happens next to them? They'll be placed in temporary housing. Okay. So they'll go to a B&B, which will probably be owned by private landlord and it will be lots of rooms with a lock on the door and some of them will be people with a lot of problems mental health problems addiction problems all sorts of things some of them will be families Mm -hmm. all in one room 
The law says that you can't leave families in a B&B for more than six weeks. It's a pretty intolerable way to live. They're horrible places. You don't want your children growing up like that. Now, councils, I'm sure we'd love to move people on from this really poor accommodation. They don't have anywhere to put them because social housing, nobody's building social housing. There's just not enough stock. There's not enough places to put them. So they could, of course, move them into a private tenancy, but private tenancies are unaffordable. Right. And a private tenancy is with a a private landlord. landlord. A private landlord. So families are staying stuck in this accommodation. Just to give a sense of the numbers, in 2010, I think there were 100 families who stayed in this accommodation for more than six weeks. Now it's more like 1,200. And that's the tip of the iceberg. I mean, a lot of fam- lot more families are in this accommodation, but they're not going over six weeks. But a huge number of families now. And when we say more than six weeks, I mean, I know people who are stuck in this accommodation for a year or more. A year? Yeah. So that, so they really are stuck and there really isn't. And it's because there there isn't a place to put them. And as you say, it's a whole family in one room yeah. often. The problem, it, it's, you know, as with always with housing, it's always these circular problems. So now we get into benefits because there's something called the local housing allowance, which is supposed to help people on a low income pay for a private rent. Now, the local housing allowance has been frozen. And that means that it's only supposed to help you get the cheapest accommodation to start with, but it's now not even really helping you get the cheapest accommodation. So hence, people are even more stuck than they were before. Okay, and this is people who are not yet homeless? It applies to anybody on a low income who is claiming a benefit. So I think there's 1.2 million people who are in private rental and, and claiming local housing allowance. Okay, and that might be something that's helping them to avoid homelessness, yes. these benefits. But as you say, these have been frozen now. Yeah. So then now the biggest group of people, the leading cause of homelessness is people being chucked out of a private tenancy. And the shortfall because of the freezing of the local housing allowance, the shortfall is growing. The shortfall between between the amount their rent is set at and the the help they get through the local housing allowance. Right. And these and, are people who are in work. They just happen to be oh, in work yeah. and on a I low mean, salary. They, they may be in work. They may not be in work. But if they're in work, they're on a low income. Yeah. And that's a huge number of people. So, for example, the shortfall for a family in York, it's about £107. In uh, Bristol, it's 207 So every that's month, the gap that's the gap between the help they get through the local housing allowance and the amount their rent is set at. Right. And it varies around the country, but it's growing and it's becoming enormous. Yeah. In London, it's highest, but in Cambridge, it's over £500. In Bristol, it's over £200. In York, it's over £100. And that's the, the shortfall for, for the cheapest homes. A family in a two-bedroom house. Think that. Right. So there isn't really anywhere cheaper that people can go once no. they've... So that's when they show up at the council office and say, we're homeless. Right. And the council say, OK, you've got children, we'll put you in um, temporary accommodation, we'll put you in a and b And then the council try to find a way to house them, and the council can't. Well, another thing you say in the article is that although there are about 1,200 families with children who've been staying in... Uh, bed and breakfast accommodation beyond the legal limit, there are 75,000 families who are living in temporary accommodation 
and that includes yeah. 119,000 children. Yeah. Which is a, a substantial number. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. it's huge. The Children's Society did a report recently looking what they called residential transients. This report looked at the effects on children of living in insecure accommodation. Now, one of the issues is with um, private lettings is short tenancies. So you come to the end of t- your tenancy and you have to move, which means you have to find another place you can afford, which is hard, as we've discussed. Rents are going up. That's hard. Also, if you're on a low income and you're dependent on the local housing allowance, then you not only have to find a home that you can afford with that, you also have to find a landlord who's willing to take somebody who's in receipt of the local housing allowance, which a lot of them won't. So that even further restricts the homes that you can look at. So the Children's Society did this report on children growing up in families dealing with this kind of transient lifestyle And it makes for miserable reading. People who are aged, you know, 11 or 12 and have moved 10 or 11 times in their life, that's changing schools, that's changing everything. So the family's family's sort of support network is challenged every time they have to move. It's difficult moving. We all know it's stressful and horrible. On the one hand, you have Theresa May talking about grammar schools improving the life chances. And on the other hand, you've got these kids for whom, frankly, grammar schools... Oh, totally irrelevant. They need something much more fundamental. They just need a secure home. And private renting struggles to provide that and increasingly can't provide that because of wages being stagnant, rents going up and the benefit that's supposed to cover the difference being frozen. This situation hasn't come out of nowhere. For decades, government hasn't been building enough houses. Government has known through its own gathered statistics that more households are being formed. So family breakup means every time a family breaks up, not every time because sometimes new families reform, but generally speaking, one household becomes two households. And that is a trend. And we've known that's happening. It's not a big bolt out of the blue, but we haven't built the homes to keep up with it. For example, I live in London. There are families in the B&B up the road who are now forming a separate household through family breakdown, through a marriage breakdown, and they are waiting for a home to come up. And in my street, which used to be local authority owned entirely, there are council tenants, there are owner-occupiers who bought their own homes, and there are private lets. So these used to be council houses that were bought by their owners, by the people who lived in them, and then were sold to private landlords and are now let privately. So these same homes have three different tenures. Now, the people who rent off the council pay about £600 a month, and the people who rent off the private landlords pay about uh, between £1,500 and £2,000 a month. Now, my mate, who is living in a and b with her two kids, cannot hope to pay £2,000 a month. So she's got to wait for one of the social tenancies to come up, for one of the council homes to come up. And she is in a she's waiting in a queue with a whole load of other people who are also waiting. Now, she gets to bid on homes as they fall vacant. And her position in the bidding queue is determined by her need, which is high because she's a mum with two kids. So she she does well on that. And how long she's been waiting now, she's been waiting about six months. Six months she's been living in a B&B with her two kids. Sounds quite long. Sounds quite long, but there are people in her B&B with kids who've been there for more than a year. In fact, one lady for more than 18 months. So 
she's still sort of having been 100 and something on the list, she's now getting up to 20 on the list, but she's still not getting a home. That's the crappy end of the sharp end of the housing crisis. You know, people just stuck in crap accommodation with bad consequences for their children and for them. The other bit, people talk about the bank of mum and dad access to borrowing money for a deposit on a house. And what we're talking about there really is um, inherited wealth. A child's life chances are still pretty much determined by the wealth of their parents. That's what the bank of mum and dad means. It's kind of a nice newspaper headline friendly way of kind of cosily portraying this. Oh, you know, drawing on the bank of mum and dad, you know, nudge, nudge, get a bit of help. But actually, it's really stark and it's actually really horrible. People who don't have any wealth in their families are horribly stuck, even more so than the people who are struggling to get together a deposit and come from a wealthier background. Even for them, there are some pretty crap consequences. The cost of housing now means people delay having a family because their focus in their 20s and increasingly in their 30s is trying to get money together for a deposit. That, that category of people who are on higher incomes are still struggling to get the deposit to buy a home. What that can mean is people delay having a family and then when they finally do get the home and they are can afford to have children, for some women it's too late. So there are real-world horrible consequences to housing dysfunction. So to go back to the Homelessness Reduction Bill, yeah. which has just got through the House of Lords, unopposed as well, we should say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone supported it and it's great. So now... Not only can single people be helped, but also they'll get help earlier. Yeah, so you can turn up before you are made homeless. At, at the, the council's offices, office. right. And ask for some help from the housing officer. Now, it's a great idea, but the problem is, if the homes aren't there and the homes that are there are, unaf- are unaffordable, all the housing officer is going to say, who's been paid for by this extra pot of money, is we don't have anywhere to put you. There isn't anywhere to go. Really, the only solution is is a structural, is a proper solution. Build more homes and do something to make homes more affordable. You mentioned social housing just now. And there were a lot of headlines a couple of years ago, I think, about uh, the proposed change whereby councils would have to sell off their most valuable uh, social housing. So if a council owns a very expensive home, they'll sell it and they'll use it to pay for not more homes but what the extension of right to buy to housing associations so housing associations they range hugely from tiny organizations that run a few homes where they offer very cheap rents in a local area to absolutely massive organizations that offer cheap rents and shared ownership schemes and they also build some things at market rent to fund the whole thing. But they're basically about providing cheaper rents. Yeah, and they're bodies which are they're sort of quasi-governmental. They're not, yes, well, this is a vexed question. They're not <laughs> charities. It's not the government, in a way, that owns all this no. social housing. It's sort of at arm's length. But housing associations own large numbers of properties. Yeah. And, as you say, they it's use It's at them. arm's length, but not arm's length enough, because uh, they're borrowing a year or two ago, was reclassified as government borrowing because they weren't able to convince the auditors that they were not government. And obviously the government's just forced the right to buy on them 
through what they call a voluntary agreement, although it wasn't really voluntary. So, okay, hang on, before we get into that. So, housing associations, the raison d'etre is to provide cheaper housing for people who need it. However, the government asked them to start selling off their most expensive homes. No, that's councils. So there are councils and housing associations. Both of them operate social rents, affordable rents. They offer cheaper rented housing. Now, council housing belongs to the councils and the housing association homes belong to each individual housing association. But the government... Actually, let's specify, this is England. So in England, if you're you're living in a council house, after a certain amount of time, you you have the right to buy it. You don't just have the right to buy it, but you have the right to have a discount on it. And the discount, I think, is 100,000 in London and 75,000 outside of London. So you can buy your home at a discounted price from the market. Now, housing association tenants didn't have this right. And in the 2015 election... One of the incentives to vote Conservative was that David Cameron came up with this pledge that we're going to extend the right to buy to housing associations, which seemed, I mean, I remember reading it and thinking, you can't do that. They don't belong to you. How can you impose that? But they absolutely did. And also, how's it going to be paid? Because that discount has to come from somewhere. How's the government going to fund it? What the proposal is, is they're going to force councils to sell off their highest value homes to pay for the housing association discount to tenants who want to buy their housing association home. I see. So over time, that will result in a reduction of the housing stock available to councils, because councils have sold off their most valuable homes. And to housing associations. Because people have bought their own homes. When the housing association has sold off a property through this right-to-buy scheme... Will they be able to use the money that they've gained from the sale to buy another housing association home? To build. I mean, that's what housing associations do, by mm. and large. They build. Yes, they will. They will be able to okay. build. Now, the problem for housing associations is they had a 10-year rent settlement. So they, they discuss rents with the government and the government agrees what the increase i i think it's it was something like one percent plus the consumer price index anyway i'm not clear on exactly Mm. what it was but they had a rent settlement and suddenly in the budget george osborne said we're going to cut rents by one percent so he he tore up with really no notice at all that rent settlement and reduced the income for housing associations and that means all the housing associations had to tear up their plans to build because their plans to build are based on what they think their income is going to be. And if the rent goes from if the rent is increasing cut to arbitrarily. Decrease, yeah. Now, the, the reason the government did that is very simple. It pays £28 billion a year for housing. And 74% of that is housing benefits to help people pay their rent. That's why it's so desperate to freeze the local housing allowance. That's why it wants to bring that cost down. So it cut the rent and therefore cut its own bill. But... We all know we need to build more houses, so it's damaged housing associations' ability to build more affordable, cheaper rent housing. Okay, so now we come back to the overall... Yeah. As you say, it all turns I in know, circles, well, this doesn't is it? Why it's always so hard to talk about. The moment you start talking about one bit of housing, you, you need to talk about another bit. It's like <laughs> one of those executive squeezy toys where, yeah. you know, wherever you squeeze it, it pops out somewhere else. <laughs> 
If we're going to talk about targets to build, mm. the target has the government has given itself a target of a million homes by 2020. So that, that was 200,000 a year. Mm. Now, people argue about what the target should be. I mean, arguably, it should be a lot more than 200,000, actually. I mean, I think the, is it the National Home Builders Federation says um, it should be more like 300,000. So already 200,000 isn't enough. We know that. But... This hasn't suddenly emerged. We haven't been building enough homes for decades. The Public Audit Committee, they had um, a housing session on the white paper, the new housing white paper in February, I think. And Lord Porter, who is the head of the local government associations, stood up before them and said, we haven't been building enough homes for decades. And we never have built enough homes without the state taking a role. I think the housing minister... What's his name? Gavin Barwell. Is it Gavin? I was getting confused yes, with the I pop think... singer. Ga- yeah. Gavin Barwell. <laughs> what, Gary um, Barlow? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're so different. Um, he said that there should be a role for the state. But, I mean, he understated it massively. Whenever we've built enough homes, like in the 50s, we built something like 2.5 million homes and 1.2 million of them were built by the state. Whenever we have built enough homes, it's because the state has pitched in and built some too. And um, that's probably what's needed so at the moment I, I i don't know whether people think that actually the state does build homes but there are large house builders yeah all over the country and they're the ones who are building the bulk of the homes now are they incentivized by the state or is that the state taking too much of a role mm, depends what you mean i mean they whinge about planning and the state has done what it can to improve the planning situation, the planning Mm. framework they operate within to make things easier and smoother for them. They tend not to vary very much. I mean, historically, the amount of homes they deliver just doesn't vary that much. And there's, there's a thing about home builders. So if you have an area and you build a certain number of homes, you'll depress the price come a certain point you'll depress the price of the homes there's a, there's because, a large yeah, supply yeah. so they are never going to build more homes than they can sell at a profit a good profit so that model will make a contribution but it will never supply enough homes that are affordable for people they, they will never supply so many homes that they bring down the price of homes put it that way so that's already problematic. <laughs> it's very problematic, yeah. <laughs> because they're acting in their interests. Yeah, of course they are. And and no, we understand that. There's no legislation, regulation to force the building of extra homes to meet demand. Yeah. What does the government say about that? The, the white paper that they brought out recently does acknowledge the some of the issues and try to address them. So it's trying to help smaller builders. It acknowledges there aren't enough builders and we, we don't have enough of the skills that we need to build on this scale. I mean, what was interesting about the evidence session at the Public Accounts Committee is the uh, Melanie Dawes. She's the civil servant in charge of this, Melanie Dawes. She acknowledged that we aren't building a, enough homes and even with the white paper, we won't be building enough homes. And she said... I'm just being honest with you. That's the fact. Even with the white paper, we won't be building enough homes. That's the simple truth. From the evidence of all the other people who went in front of the committee, it's clear that the market isn't going to deliver enough homes at any point. That's not going to happen. Is there appetite in government to pick up that slack? Lord Porter had an argument with the man from the Treasury about exactly this. What councils want is to have 
the restrictions on their borrowing lifted so they can borrow against all their council housing and build more. But the Treasury won't do that. Their argument is they don't want a cheque, they just want permission to borrow and build. But they can borrow cheaply. Because the bill is so high for housing benefit, yeah, it would also bring down the housing benefit Oh, in the costs. long term. In the long yes, term. Yes, in the long term. That's the point. Substantially. The investment is for the long term. And the successive governments of left and right have failed to build the homes they should have done. All of this was predictable, foreseeable. We had the stats. We knew it wasn't addressed. And then it comes back to why this failure? Is it because it would be very expensive in the short term? Is that the only reason? Yeah, there is a cost in the short term. I mean, if you're going to build houses, that's going to cost money. Um, there are other problems, which are that we, our skills base has has deteriorated. So we don't actually have the builders to build. I think a quarter of the builders in London who are working and building these homes we're talking about are European rather than British. So in a couple of years' time, we may lose them as well, and we don't have enough already. So to try and draw all this together, at the moment, if you become homeless, yeah, there's a little more help. There's a little more help for single people who, aren't, who don't fall into one of the vulnerable categories. Yeah. However, the underlying problem... Not enough affordable accommodation yeah. remains. Yeah. The government's changes with local councils and housing associations are probably going to make that problem worse. worse. For sure. We're not building quite enough houses, and we never will, as long as it's left to house builders who want to maximise profits and are not being compelled to build enough housing to meet demand. Yeah. Government's not going to start a massive house building programme tomorrow to meet demand. No. Meaning that the situation at the start gets worse. Yes. That's about it. There's precious little source for optimism. Well, don't we have housing ministers to try and deal with this kind of thing? We do. We've had a lot of housing ministers. Well, the turnover's fun, quite fun, high. Fun. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've had lots of people pitch in there and, and, and put their feet under the desk for half an hour and then clear <laughs> off going, well, that was tricky. <laughs> Couldn't fix that one. But the current housing minister has been... I think better. I mean, he shows signs of actually he's gone around and listened. And I think he he changed the rhetoric. So he did start talking about multi-tenure. So the emphasis of home ownership under Osborne and Cameron, all we ever heard about was home ownership. Barwell talks about trying to improve things across all tenures. So that's hopeful. But it's it's not enough. I think he hasn't yet admitted that we're going to need to build. The state's going to need to build. We normally like to end on a positive note, but I think we might just have to put a song at the end of this bit. <laughs> I thought, cheer us up at least. <laughs> Rachel Clay. Now, when you pick up a copy of Private Eye, you may notice that there are no bylines in it whatsoever. None of the journalists or joke writers who write for Private Eye get a credit. Instead, there is an amazing cast of characters whose names are kind of sprinkled throughout the pages. Uh, people like Gavel Basher, people like Pilotti, people like Square Basher, Old Sparky, New Bio Waste Spreader, Remote Controller. So I thought it might be worth sitting down with Ian Hislop, the magazine's editor, a.k.a. Ian Hislop, uh, for a bit of a chat about anonymity. There comes a point in um, people's career when they write for the eye when they either get sufficiently established that they can't be fired in their professions anymore or they just give up and don't care anymore and develop a, a skin so thick they don't care who knows. But quite a lot of our columns are written by people inside the industries 
professions, businesses they write about, and were it to be known who they were, they would be sacked. So it's difficult for me to say, well, why don't you interview them? Because that would be the end, not only of their career, but also of the column, because um, then we wouldn't have the insiders anymore. I mean, I did think about trying to get you to interview people with an actor, sort of pretending to be Jerry Adams or uh, whatever, but it, it never really works, that. So I'm afraid, for obvious, well, obvious to me reasons, they have to remain anonymous. It is surprising who's secret and who's not, because you would have thought, for example, last, last time we had Paul Vickers, who does Square Basher, the military correspondent, you would have thought, oh, army, very secret. One of the most secretive people uh, is Dr. B. Ching, who writes about trains. Yes, well, uh, I mean, compared to the army, you know, railways is a really dangerous business, and people are very, very serious about trains in a way they probably aren't about destroyers or aircraft carriers. So uh, Paul is, is happy to be a defence correspondent, as it were, but... Uh, Dr. B. Ching, is he's there in the middle of the action. So I'm afraid, you know, from getting lynched by commuters or targeted by the rail industry, you, you just can't talk to him. Are there any people who have one name, but actually there are a conglomerate of different people? I can't tell you that. Damn it. Um, all right. How did it start? Because the whole magazine anonymous, how did that get going in the first place? That, that's not an obvious thing for magazines to do necessarily. No, I I believe it was a mixture of safety and the original contributors not wanting to give each other any credit. So (laughs) I think it was a a curious mix. And it was the 60s, so there was a sort of collective feeling about. But one of the first people to be named was Paul Foote, and he was clear that doing his sort of journalism, you had to be a focus, a funnel. We still have people, you know who writes the business, you know who writes that. But there are, I still maintain that it is acceptable to have certain people who are in the midst of it who you just you can't reveal who they are has anyone ever started secret and then decided actually it doesn't matter anymore a lot of people start secret i'm sort of found saying i'm terribly sorry i can't say who they are and they say oh really because they've just done an interview (laughs) in the paper claiming all the credit um for some piece so it's quite tempting i mean if people are any good to start saying, well, it was me, actually. Do people get to choose their own nicknames? Because you've got bio-waste spreader, who does farming, you've got old Sparky, who does energy and power, remote controller, who does telly. Are these names that they assume like superhero costumes, or are they names that you impose on them like superhero costumes? No, they are self-defining. And in television, there's remote controller most of the time, and then occasionally there's someone called Youth who takes over when perhaps the older remote controller isn't there, though he, she may well be younger. I'm not giving that away. And we used to have a farming was done by old muck spreader, and the new person doing it felt that was out of date, so he became new bio-waste spreader. <laughs> so the, the nicknames change, as do the contributors. Is it helpful from a legal point of view as well? As in, I think I heard something about the magazine gets sued rather than the individual writer. It makes it more difficult for vindictive libel actions um, or privacy actions or confidentiality, you can't say, well, that person has betrayed a confidence because you don't know who they are. So you just have to sue the magazine. So it's helpful in one sense, but it's unhelpful in the sense that the other side can then say, well, you don't even have the courage to come out um, and admit who you are. I remember some barrister saying uh, that a contributor had displayed all the bravery of a rubber chicken. So, I mean, the jury may well think, well, 
um, this anonymity is a bit cowardly. Is there anything in that, do you think? I, I would say not, but um, I can see why they say it. But I would say in certain types of journalism, it is, it's pretty important not to know. Have you selected your own secret name? I use Ian Hislop, um, which fools a lot of people. <laughs> that was Ian Hislop, a.k.a. Ed. That's it for this week's episode of Page 94. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you want to hear more from the people who actually write the magazine, then you can pick up a copy of Private Eye available on all good newsstands now. Thanks very much again, and goodbye.